well. All right. Uh, I just prayed, but I feel like I need to pray again, and then we'll get into our conversation in Matthew. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are, again, grateful for opportunities like this to be generous. Um, thank you for the partnership that's been built with the Mockfords now for several years and, and for uh, the investment um, really in both directions, in uh, building your kingdom, both here in Davis, but around the world, as we talked about earlier uh, in our gathering today. Um, Fathers, we turn our attention now to Scripture. Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Uh, we are moving into a part of the story um, that is dark and troubling. Uh, I think maybe sometimes we want to fast forward to the end because the end is happy. But help us to sit with uh, the truth and the reality of the events that led to Jesus' death. Even though it might, again, be dark or feel dark, there are these glimmers of the gospel, glimmers of hope even within that. And so help us to sit with the tension between those two things this morning as we turn our attention to your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone on our team would love to come around and make sure you have a Bible. Let me get set up here real fast. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 here in just a moment. And as, uh, as those are getting passed out and as you're looking that up in your Bible or on your phone, whatever you're using this morning... I want to start with a question, sort of a silly question. How many of you are familiar with the show or fans of the show The Good Place? Okay, anybody here? Huh, that's more than I thought. That's great. This is going to be a good, good time. Uh, this show is, has become one of my favorite shows. It's sort of the perfect show for me. It's very nerdy. Uh, And it's very like uh, philosophical, moral philosophy, talking about religion. And and really the central premise of the show is around the question, what happens to us after we die? And and I think in a lot of ways, this is a very taboo subject for uh, us here in the 21st century. And yet they just dive right into this uh, in a way that I think is both accurate in the sense of representing how I think a lot of people think about the afterlife in the 21st century. But I think also, in a way, it's a very prophetic show in that it, it pokes some holes in our thinking and some of the commonly held cultural beliefs about the afterlife. For those of you who haven't seen the show, I'm just going to give a quick premise. I promise not to spoil it too much if this is on your radar and one of your cues. Um, But the premise of the show is this. There is an algorithm that determines a a point value for all of your actions and decisions. And as you go through life, you accumulate or lose points depending on on, what you do and, and the decisions that you make. And then when you die, that algorithm determines whether you go to the good place or the bad place. Okay, Those are the two options. All right. Now, this is, the, this is the one minor spoiler, okay? There comes a point in the show where the main characters discover that no one is actually getting into the good place. Everybody is going to the bad place. It's too hard to overcome the power of the algorithm. And so, again, everyone is missing the cut and ending up in the bad place. And again, in this very kind of interesting and subversive way, they basically summarize at least an aspect of the gospel. 
which says that there's nothing that we can do, right? There, no, it doesn't matter how hard we work or, or how many good things we do. We can never rack up enough good points to earn our way into the good place. The New Testament writer Titus says it this way, Jesus saved us not because of righteous things we had done, not because the algorithm said you have done enough good things. Jesus saves us because of his mercy. And it is his Grace and mercy that really flies in the face of a lot of our modern thinking. Again, modern thinking captured in a very beautiful and very funny way in this show. But I think the thing that they get is just how much of our life is grounded, how much of our thinking is grounded to the idea of merit. A lot of our lives are controlled by algorithms, if you really think about it. And in some ways, this is a great thing, right? It's very useful to be able to press a couple of buttons on your phone and find the fastest route home or the best local coffee or the next book that you might want to read. But there are some pretty significant negative outcomes to a life, to a world that is ruled by algorithms. And one of those, or one of the impacts of this, is what I would call the crushingly meritocratic nature of our society. Pastor Brian Loritz writes this. He says, we live in a meritocracy that makes value judgments on people based on their accomplishments, their talent, their work, the number of accolades they receive for such work. The flip side of that is that our world also makes value judgments based on our lack of any of those things. Jesus tenderly invites us to stop all the trying, drop the performance, put it aside, feel the burden lift, invites us to come and abide in him. He closes this thought by saying, easier said than done, right? Tomorrow you will wake up and feel the gravitational pull of our society beckoning you to prove yourself yet again This is not the way of Jesus. And he's right. How many of us will wake up tomorrow morning? Maybe even we'll we'll feel it the moment we step out of this theater and, and check our email. We'll feel the gravitational pull to prove ourselves all over again. I'll never forget, um, I, I used to work in campus ministry as well, and in 2013, uh, I was working at Boston University, and we had like this year-end meeting of student life people, and the big conversation at that meeting was a statistic, and the statistic was the school had sent more kids to the hospital that year for mental health-related issues than for alcohol. It was the first time in school history, as far as anyone knew, that they had done that. Sent more kids to the hospital for mental health-related issues than for alcohol-related issues. And at that point in time, that was sort of a new kind of like, wow, what what, what is going on here? What is this thing? This has become a very common conversation on campuses around the United States. We are being crushed by meritocracy. Crushed by that feeling that we are never going to fully measure up. The numbers are never going to work out in our favor. We we know this. We feel it in our bones. And so we go looking for relief from that pressure in all kinds of places. And what we're going to see this morning is that there is grave danger in going to the wrong places looking for 
relief. Looking for a release from that pressure. Looking for forgiveness. Looking for salvation. Again, if you have a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 27. We're looking at verses 1 through 26 this morning. And as you're finding that, uh, let's just remember where we are. Again, we've been in this journey through Matthew for quite some time now. This is week 38 of 40. We are almost to the end. We're in the final movement of the book. We've split it up into seven movements. This final movement began in chapter 26, where we see Jesus eating a final meal with his disciples. When they finish that meal, he and his team, they go out into this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, to pray. And it's there that Jesus has this very agonizing moment of staring down his destiny. It's in that garden that Judas, one of his closest followers, turns him over to the authorities. Jesus arrested and then put on trial in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was the sort of elite, elite leadership, spiritual leadership of Israel at that time. This is where we were last week. They condemn him to death on the charge of blasphemy. Meanwhile, during all of that, we also see Peter uh, really struggling with what's going on, right? We we see Peter radically break right relationship with Jesus, this three-part denial of any association with Jesus. And, And it leaves Peter broken. Right, weeping bitterly over his inability to measure up. Now, the chunk of Matthew we're going to look at this morning is relatively short, but it's packed with a bunch of different characters. So we're going to look at a lot of uh, similar scenes, but through the eyes of these different characters. Let me just summarize the story for us really quickly, and then we'll jump into some of the, the important characters here. So the first part of our scene today involves Judas, And Judas has this moment of remorse. He realizes what he's done, and he wants to try to undo it. And he goes to the chief priests and the elders, again, the Sanhedrin, and they they tell him, too bad, man, it's on you. And so this overwhelms Judas to the point of him taking his own life. Meanwhile, Jesus is handed over to the governor, the Roman governor, a guy named Pilate, and uh, he's kind of now in trial part two. Right? He's got to uh, stand before Pilate for judgment. And Pilate is struggling to understand what's going on. He doesn't really get why Jesus is on trial or what he's done that's so terribly wrong. Pilate tries to get out of this with a, a prisoner exchange game that he would play with the people every year. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But the people say, no, we don't want the other prisoner. We want Jesus to be crucified. And that's where we're going to end this morning with Jesus being taken off for crucifixion. All right, now we're going to kind of go back through that a few times, but looking at different characters. So let's begin with those characters who have the most power. These are the chief priests, and this is this guy named Pilate. The chief priests and the elders, again, the Sanhedrin, the governing, the religious governing body, have, if you think about this from a political standpoint, they have played the game perfectly. Remember, one of Matthew's big goals here is to demonstrate the injustice of the trial and death of Jesus. He wants us to see this is an innocent man whose downfall is brought about by a corrupt and evil system. And one way we see that is in the political maneuverings of this leadership body. Again, they play the game extremely well. They cut a backroom deal with one of Jesus' closest men. 
They find just enough witnesses to get a conviction. They get the conviction. They get Jesus to give a fairly damning uh, uh, confession, right? This statement where Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sitting in power at the right hand of the Father, the Mighty One. The only problem with all of this, at least in their eyes, is that they don't have the power to actually kill Jesus. In this system where Israel is being ruled by the Roman Empire, only Rome had the power to execute a criminal. So now we've come to the moment where they have to hand Jesus over and trust that things will kind of take care of themselves. All in all, though, in a very good position in that they've met their goal. To get rid of Jesus, they've done it at a fairly cheap price, 30 pieces of silver, and they've done it in a way that they will have no direct blood on their hands. This is how systemic sin and injustice works. It creates this distance. It creates this appearance of innocence. It's not on me. I'm just a person. We still do this today, right, with these really big systemic issues in our world, whether it's racism or poverty or sexism, whatever it is, we throw up our hands. What is that to us? That's not my responsibility, which is literally a quote from the chief priests as they respond to Judas. What is that to us? That's your responsibility. Now, if you were here last Sunday, some of that language might ring a bell for you. This is the the mirror opposite of the type of indifference that Jesus invited us into last week. Remember, we looked a lot at, at this character of Peter and his story, the journey that he goes on. And in particular, we talked about how guilt and shame, these tapes that sort of play in our head, heap uh, even more guilt and shame on us, especially when we're comparing our, uh, ourselves to others. Look at how good they are. They've got it all together. I'm a mess. All, all these kinds of things we tell ourselves. This is yet another fallout of the meritocracy. And so we see Peter struggling with this, and then Jesus invites him to think about this. What is it to you? What happens to these other disciples? You must follow me. This invitation to stop comparing ourselves to others, to trust that the process and the journey that Jesus has uh, for Peter is good. To trust that there's something that that Jesus has for us to move through. Now, leaving comparison behind, this sort of indifference is is what St. Augustine calls active indifference. Active indifference. He defines it this way. The capacity to let go of what doesn't help me love God or love others while staying engaged with what does. The capacity to let go of what doesn't help me love God or love others while staying engaged with what does. Now the opposite of this is what we might call or what a psychologist might call ego fixation, right? Where we're very much wrapped up in our own thing. This is the persistence of self-preservation, the inability to let go of what doesn't help me love God and love others. And this is very much where the chief priests are, right? Cannot get over themselves and their agenda. This is one way that many of us deal with our sin, with our shame, with our guilt. We try to pretend like it doesn't exist. 
Now, what's fascinating is that in this story, those who have the most power take the least responsibility. Those with the most power take the least responsibility. We see this even more acutely with this guy named Pilate. Pilate was a a middle manager in the Roman Empire, but that sort of understates the amount of power that he truly had. He was in charge of a big region, most of what we would call the Middle East today. Uh, At that time, also very much a tumultuous region. And he truly has all the power there. Herod, we've seen a few times as we've made our way through Matthew. Herod was just a puppet ruler, someone that Pilate kind of propped up uh, and manipulated to help maintain control of the region. The religious leadership of Israel had a certain amount of power, had authority and prestige with the people, but at the end of the day, all of the power was in Pilate's hands. If Pilate wanted to stop a would-be Messiah, he could do it. Pilate wanted to end the Passover celebrations, he could do it. If Pilate wanted to destroy Israel, he could do it. And he did a lot of of sort of big things and then more subtle things, brutal things, to assert his power. One example of that from our scene today is the entirely unnecessary flogging of Jesus uh, at the end of the story. Verse 26. Just another kind of little way that Pilate exerted his power. Now, as, you, as we move through this scene, we see that Pilate is a bit mystified as to what is going on here. Why have, you, why have you brought this guy to me? Doesn't understand what Jesus has done wrong and then really doesn't understand Jesus at all. Why is this guy silent in the face of these accusations? In the middle of all this, his wife adds a layer to the drama by telling him to have nothing to do with Jesus because of this dream that she had the night before. And you get the sense that Pilate really doesn't want anything to do with this. And so this is where this prisoner exchange game comes into play. This is something Pilate would do every year, give the people an opportunity to to release uh, someone that they had jailed during the year. His hope here is that the people would pick a different prisoner to put to death so that then he could let Jesus go and not really have anything to do with this anymore. But Pilate finally relents. He gives in to the crowd's demands and watch what he does. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the whole crowd. He says, I'm innocent this man's blood, and then look at what he says. It's your responsibility. Your responsibility. Those with the most power in this story abdicate all responsibility. It's on you. This is what we might call the sin management strategy of denial, right? This is a very extreme example But again, this is what a lot of us do. We try to pretend like it doesn't exist, like we're not connected to it. We wash our hands. We walk away. We abdicate any responsibility, the sin management strategy of denial. Now, let's turn the lens here onto some different characters, characters who try to manage their sin in a very different way. We're going to look at Judas and then this unnamed character, the crowd, all right? Judas, in verse 3, tells us that he was seized with remorse. And this raises a whole bunch of questions for us. What 
is going on with Judas? Why all of a sudden these second thoughts? What did Judas really expect was going to happen here? Did, did he think that the religious leaders would talk some sense into Jesus and he'd change his mind about all the things he's been talking about and sort of move on? Uh, did he think that maybe they'd throw him in jail for a night and that would sort of wake him up to all the you know, idealism that he'd gotten caught up in? What did Judas expect to happen? Whatever his expectations were, he, he clearly realizes that something is wrong here. And we don't know a whole lot about what's going on with him. We have way more information about Peter than we do about Judas. But from what we do know, there had always been a little bit of a disconnect. Judas had a very significant misunderstanding of who Jesus was over the, the nature of the Messiah, what the Messiah was supposed to do and accomplish. Judas wanted money and power and prestige. He wanted the, the sort of political revolution that was promised in the Messiah. And Jesus, we've seen over and over again, came to give all of that away. So again, uh, clearly an issue of missed expectations and disappointment. Jesus, you are not who I hoped you would be. But just as I think we have a tendency to gloss over Peter's failure... I think we also have a tendency to see Judas as like this horrible, rotten character, right? He's the evil villain in the story. Matthew has this very tempered uh, presentation of Judas. Not a huge degree of difference between him and Peter. Matthew wants us to see, when it comes to Judas, it could have been any of the disciples. Really, it could have been any of us. Now, Judas goes back to the chief priests, the same people that he had cut a deal with to try to make things right. Now, the way that this should have worked, or my guess is the way that Judas expected this to work, is that they would take the money back, and then they would give Judas some sort of plan. Go kill uh, some goats, or go do these rituals to, to cleanse yourself, to get yourself back on the right side of the ledger. But the system that he cared so much for the system that he cared so much for that he turned Jesus in rather than watch Jesus disrupt it, the system fails him. The system shrugs its shoulders and says, what is it to us? It's your responsibility. And so Judas doesn't abdicate his responsibility. He takes it all on himself. And now he has nowhere else to go. And he can't live with it, and so he takes his own life. This is a very, very sad and tragic part of the story. Judas essentially makes himself the sacrifice, punishes himself for his sin. This is the sin management strategy of self-punishment. We may not do it in, in such extreme ways, but a lot of times we take it on ourselves. This leads us to another character that essentially does the very same thing, this crowd that calls for Jesus to be crucified. Now, one of the questions that comes up in the Jesus story a lot is, what, what's up with the crowd? How, how do they shift so quickly? Remember, when Jesus enters Jerusalem shortly before Passover, there's this crowd of people who are there for the celebration. They pave the way for Jesus to enter into the city with their, with their coats and with palm branches. And they are chanting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And then as Jesus has his final showdowns with the chief priests and the leaders of the people, they continue to fear the reaction of the crowd. 48 hours before this moment, they're scheming secretly. How can we kill Jesus secretly? Because they're, they're so afraid of the people. A lot of those same people are in this crowd. Now, one way this gets uh, interpreted is to say, well, crowds are dumb, right? Get a bunch of people together and, like, nothing good will happen, right? <laughs> and there's some truth to that, but the, I think that interpretation underestimates the power of oppression. The people of Israel had a long history of living under oppression. 400 years of slavery in Egypt, generational issues with their neighbors. They'd been exiled to Persia and Babylon, and when they finally got to come home, they were conquered by Greece and then by Rome. Thousands of years of living under oppression. That history, that story is so formative. It's why the promise of a Messiah was so huge in their imagination. Someone who would come and rescue us, free us from living this way, bring freedom and justice. They hoped for that so deeply. And it's why Pilate's prisoner exchange game was such a big deal for them. They did not live in a democracy. And so here's the one moment where they get to have a voice, where they get to make a decision. Now, certainly the chief priests and the elders are doing some sinister work. They're kind of in the crowd telling them who to cheer for and, and say, you know, we want Barabbas to be freed. We want Jesus to be crucified. But notice how more than anyone else in this story, the crowd owns their choice. His blood is on us. And our children. What a statement that is. They take it all on themselves. <clears throat> now, shift the camera one more time. We need to talk about Jesus and the disciples here before we come in for a landing. These events are, are horribly tragic Moments where humanity is sitting in judgment against the Son of God, the creator and sustainer of all things. And we've seen this now for two weeks in a row, but in the midst of all of that, Jesus is so restrained. Look at verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, This is Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked them, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of Pilate. And we've seen the reticence of Jesus here as a form of nonviolent protest, right? His silence is a way of making a mockery of the lies and the false words that are being spoken. Notice that Jesus answers Pilate the same way he responded to Caiaphas, the chief priest. He says, you have said so. These are your accusations. These are your words. Your choices leading in this direction. Which 
points to a very troubling reality. God is actively restraining himself. God is allowing this to happen. The same God who reached out, who came down, the fancy theological word here is incarnated himself to be with us. The same God who lived as a human being for 33 years, walked with us, spoke to us through the person of Jesus, teaching us the best way to live. This God is now not speaking. The God who spoke the universe into existence, whose word preserves and sustains the world, this God is not speaking. Holding back, pulling away, and that is a really scary thing if you think about it. Now, speaking of pulling away, the other characters who are conspicuous in in their absence are these other disciples. Last week we looked at Peter. We know what's going on with him. Today we saw more about Judas. But there's these ten other guys that are unaccounted for, right? Just don't appear here at all. Now, at the danger of, of potentially rewriting history, one has to wonder how this all would have been different if the disciples were more engaged. Now, certainly, I think the wheels have turned to the point here where there's no going back from the crucifixion, but I want you to think about some, other, some of the other things that could have happened here. Jesus did predict that they would all scatter, but because they bail on Jesus, does that mean they also need to bail on each other? What if a couple of them were, were there to comfort Peter? What if a couple of them had gone after Judas? What if Judas had a few brothers look him in the eye and say, we forgive you, we are here for you? What if some of them had been in the crowd? Could they have turned a couple of hearts? What about this? What if one of them had volunteered themselves in place of Barabbas? How would the crowd have reacted to that kind of love? Again, all this is a thought experience, but the disciples are very conspicuous in their absence. I think a truth here for us is Jesus followers, we're not to run away from the darkness. We're not to turn our back on evil and injustice. We should be present. Not necessarily so we can save the day, but present to see, to bear witness, to speak truth, to be light, where there is darkness. Now, as we watch the downfall of Jesus, again, we are confronted with a significant amount of darkness, and I just got to warn you, it's only going to get darker next week, all right? I do think it's important for us to sit with this. There's this tendency to fast forward to the happy ending. But today's dark and troubling events highlight two tragic human responses to sin. One, again, to live in denial, like the chief priests and Pilate, denial of all the ways that we break right relationship with God and with each other. To pretend like sin doesn't exist. We say things like, well, I'm a good person. It's not really my fault. We wash our hands and walk away from any responsibility. Now, the other way is to go the route of Judas and the crowd and take it all on ourselves. And to do that is to become overwhelmed. Overwhelmed at some point by the guilt and the shame of how far we fall short. You cannot take it all on yourself. 
Now Judas, in a moment of remorse, honestly a moment that looks a lot like repentance, what we see Judas do is he goes to the wrong place seeking forgiveness and relief. Judas chooses a system over Jesus. But then the system fails him and he has nowhere to go. Now this is a a, a difficult, uh, tricky truth, but it just needs to be said out loud. Okay, the church, and I'm talking about discovery, but also the church at large, the church is called to be the presence of Jesus in our world for people who need good news, but sometimes we put more hope in the church, in the system of theology, than we do in Jesus and the power of his death and resurrection. Now, again, this is, this is a, a, a tricky one. We need the church. I've dedicated my life to serving the church. I love the church. But at some point, the church will let you down. And if you don't believe me, let's get coffee. I have some stories, okay? <laughs> the church, the system, the program is not what saves. Jesus saves us. That misplaced hope, it reverts us back to meritocracy rather than the grace-infused kingdom of heaven that Jesus rules over. We can fall into this trap of expecting the church to meet our needs, to be our good news. Instead of going to church, participating in a church, to experience and discover the good news of Jesus. Very subtle difference, but do you see that? Are you with me? Now, a couple of big questions for us. One is, have you been looking in the wrong place for forgiveness? Looking to a system. And then similarly, what savior will you choose? And this brings us to one final character as we come in for a close. There's this character called Barabbas. Barabbas, in many ways, a very unfortunate bystander, or fortunate bystander, I guess, depending on how you look at it, in this scene. Matthew is interesting. He tells us his full name. His full name is Jesus Barabbas. Jesus means God is salvation. Barabbas means son of the Father. Jesus, son of the Father. The people choose Jesus Barabbas instead of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. We can choose things that sound really good. Work, education, marriage, family, parenting, friendships, even serving at church, serving the community, all sorts of great things. Those things won't save you. Jesus Barabbas was in jail for leading a messianic uprising. He, for a moment, gave the people what they wanted an outlet to channel their frustration with the Roman Empire, Roman oppression. But the tragedy is here, they choose the lesser Savior. Jesus Barabbas instead of Jesus the Messiah, the one who could truly set them free both now and into eternity. And here in this part of the story, we again get this little glimpse, this little picture of the gospel. Jesus dies the death that Barabbas should have died. 
Jesus dies the death that we should have died. Again, in the middle of this incredibly dark scene, a picture of the good news of Jesus. The good news that uh, we don't have to live in denial of our sin. We can be honest about it. We can name it. We can confess it. And then we can give it over to Jesus and trust that he has taken care of it. We also uh, don't have to bear the weight of it. Naming it is part of it, but then we, sometimes we still take it on ourselves and try to handle it on our own. We don't have to bear the weight of it. We don't have to punish ourselves for it. Jesus has taken that punishment for us. So who are you in the story today? Have you tried to manage your own sin? Have you been living in denial about it, or have you been taking it all on yourself, punishing yourself for all the ways that you feel like you fall short? Where are you looking for forgiveness and salvation? Choose Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we again acknowledge that um, the events that, le- that lead to Jesus' death are so, uh, can be so dark and heavy that we want to just blast right through it and-, and get to the resurrection part of it. But God, we ask for the ability to sit with these stories here for a couple of weeks and what they really mean. God, there's so many ways that we sin, that we have broken right relationship with you and with each other. And for some of us, we try to pretend like it's not there, like it doesn't exist. For others of us, maybe we take it on ourselves. We punish ourselves for all the ways that we feel like we fall short. We go looking in other places. We look to systems. We look to different people or things to relieve us of that pressure. Thank you, God, for the good gift of your son who takes it on himself so that we don't have to take it on, who, who uh, uh, deals with it so that we can be honest and, and confess and as a result experience your grace and forgiveness. So I pray this morning, God, that we would be able to name that some of the, the areas where we go looking in the wrong place for relief, for forgiveness, for salvation, and that we would choose Jesus, the Messiah, to be our Savior. The only one who could take on all of this and do away with it. We are grateful, so grateful for that good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our time together as we do every Sunday by taking communion. And uh, the band's going to uh, play for a few moments, just give us some space to reflect on uh, some of the things that came up uh, for you. And then when you're ready, you can come to one of the stations here around the theater. Uh, Take the bread representing Jesus' body. Dip it in the cup of juice representing his blood. This truth that Jesus has dealt with our sin.
and, and that some of the ways that we try to manage our sin are just so inferior to the good gift that Jesus gives us in his death and resurrection. When you're ready, come and take communion with us. Thank you.